You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. This is Mark Lintonmeyer. For episode 13, I'll be talking to Beth Killey, my second foray into my local Madison, Wisconsin music scene. Beth is one of the musical celebrities here. She's been active since 2000 and has her fingers in most of the musical pots in the area. I was aware of her band Clear Blue Betty while I was playing out a few years back, and I was reminded of her when my daughter attended Girls Rock Camp, that she is one of the people chiefly in charge of. And getting involved in something like that that uses her passion provides a really solid foundation for then being a professional musician so that between all these musical activities, including running a studio, she can be financially solvent without having to tour all the time. You are listening to Go Back from Clearly Blue Betty's first album, Never Been a Rebel. And the songs we're going to discuss today are Wrong Side of Gone from her most recent EP credited to the Beth Killey Band. That's Stark Raving Songbird from 2015. And we'll go back to the previous album credited simply to Beth Killey, Dust from 2012. The song is Dead Man in a Dream. And we'll dip back to Clear Blue Betty's Through the Walls from the 2007 EP of that name. And finally, we'll wrap up by listening to Little Bit Drunk from her first full soul LP, Ready. 2010. Now, as I said, she's a very busy lady, and we're going to talk about some collaborative projects she was involved in toward the end here. If you want to hear samples of those, check out the blog post for this episode at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, where with a donation, you can go sign into our member site and hear those songs along with a good deal of additional discussion I had with Beth. To learn more about Beth, go to bethkilly.com, where you can hear audio from all of her solo and collaborative albums. Okay, so I'm here with Beth. Hello. We should get pretty quickly into the first song, which is from your most current thing. It's the wrong side of gone from the Stark Raving Songbird 2015 EP. But tell us how you got to this point. Yes. Uh, Well, you mean how I got to this point in my life or in that song? In your band history. I know that 2002, 2008, you were in this clear blue Betty, which I was aware of because toward the end of that part is when I was getting going with new people. And you're a local music celebrity. Oh, that's awesome. And so much as we have those in Madison. So that broke up in 2008 because you had to move away for a year, right? Yes. My husband got a a one-year job training thing that we did down in Houston, Texas. So that's when Clear Blue Betty broke up. But yeah, then I came back as Beth Killey and uh, sort of tried to re-embed myself into the music scene as a solo artist. But now I have all these other little projects going other than just my solo project. But uh, it's been kind of a cool ride. I played a variety of instruments growing up, but didn't pick up the guitar until I was in grad school and started writing songs then and surrounded myself with people who knew a whole lot more about songwriting and guitar playing and being in a band than I did for several years. And Clear Blue Betty sprung up in 2002. And in 2008, we moved to Texas and I came back a year later. Then I was just kind of doing my own thing. And I know your husband has been the drummer the whole yeah. time, right, Tony? Yeah. Was he one of the ones, he was in bands before that? No, we, no, okay. seriously, we, like, I bought him a drum kit when he graduated. College or high school? I know you guys go way back. Well, actually from med school. Okay. And that was kind of his, here's a, a present for you, and, and I like to play guitar and sing, and maybe you can play something in the background. And we just kind of grew up together, pounding it out and sucking for a really long time. <laughs> but, uh, but again, you know, you just keep finding people that know a little bit more than you or a lot more than you, and they tolerate your wandering and figuring things out and they make you better. And, and yeah, he's been my drummer now since 2001. He plays when the Beth Killey band plays, if I need a full band backing me up, he's the man. So it's been kind of fun to have that journey with him. So you had come back and you did an EP that you recorded yourself. I saw. Yeah. And then two studio albums. Those are both like this EP. Are those all with Jake Johnson in the at Paradigm? Yeah. So Ready, which was the one first one I recorded when I got back from Texas, the first full length um, mm-hmm. studio record. That one I recorded at Paradigm. And then Dust, which came out in 2012, was recorded at Paradigm. But the EP that I did with the Beth Killey Band was recorded actually by the guy who plays bass in the Beth Killey Band. Uh, his name is Michael Mood. He's got a little home studio and we just banged it out with him in his basement. Well, it sounds great. Any sort of introductory words for the particular song, Wrong Side of Gone, before we play it? Yeah, so this song was a song that started with a title, and the title actually came when I was sitting at a coffee shop, and I was, they had music playing in the background, and I, I was listening to a song, but it was kind of loud, I couldn't quite hear it, and I thought I heard the singer say, The Wrong Side of Gone, and I was like, oh, that's such a cool line, but then I realized they were saying something else. But I'm like, oh, I'm totally going to write a song with that title. And so that title is kind of stuck in my head. And and finally, one day, the, the rest of the song fell into it. 
like that old oak tree stuck in the ground. Battered by the wind and rain, just waiting to fall down. Never hit quite hard enough to make me break. I'm strong enough to stand it. I don't want to live this way. And I can make a change. And I can make you see. And I know I can't stay. But I can't bear to leave. I've been so deep in denial. Cause I've known it all along. Living on the wrong side of So just listening to this, it sounded like a kind of possibly autobiographical bad relationship song, but then actually looking at the lyrics or listening more closely, no, this is, sounds actually about domestic violence. Is this a... Yeah. Okay. So the song was actually inspired by a variety of things. I was had read an article in a magazine about domestic violence. So that topic was kind of fresh in my head. And I had a friend who was going through a pretty rough breakup and hearing her story and kind of putting all those things together and... You know, the first line of the song is, I feel like that old oak tree stuck in the ground. There's literally a huge stump in my backyard. At the time, though, it was a big oak tree that was dead and needed to come down. And I, it was a horrible, windy, rainy day. And this dead tree was just getting bashed by the elements. And I was like, man, that would suck to be, <laughs> be stuck in the ground in a day like today. And somehow, like all of those thoughts came together in my head. And 
And I started writing the song around that title and kind of that image of the oak tree. And I think that metaphor of, you know, anyone who's stuck, whether it be a, you know, physically abusive or emotionally abusive relationship, that's kind of what that song is about is that aspect of denial, you know, where you think, well, if I just stay with this person, I can change them. I can make them better. Um, and, you know, again, I was, I was reading that article in that magazine and that's, it was told from the perspective of, of a woman who had been in an abusive relationship and, you know, was kind of like, well, you know, maybe if I, could do something to change this person. Maybe it's my fault. And that kind of cyclical aspect of hope and denial and uh, all that stuff that spirals into why people stay in terrible relationships. But even when they know they need to, to get the heck out of it, they get stuck sometimes. So this is something I've heard a lot about recently. My wife recently finished a master's in public administration with a domestic violence concentration. Ah, yeah. um, so I got to hear secondhand all these stories and, uh, but what seems fresh, especially here to me, is the fact that it's actually still aimed at the abuser. Whereas, you know, when you're talking about dealing with somebody who's suffering from domestic violence, the whole thing is about the psychology of the woman, of how, which you, of course, have reflected here, you know, in the first verse that you quoted and throughout of, you know, why would you stay in that relationship and conflicting feelings that you have. But talking to the abuser as a human being, even if it's yeah. sort of a, you know, screw you song, that's, yeah. <laughs> of course, it's a screw you song. Of course, that would be something that would be going through the head of this person. But that seems to be the element that in these discussions is kind of missing that the abuser is, you know, let's talk about how manipulative and horrible these people are. But basically, you're treating the abuser as like an animal that has to be dealt with, like some yeah. evil force, which is if you're dealing with the therapy situation with the woman, of course, you don't have access to the guy. That's not the point. But, you know, having this first person in that situation and, of course, that would be, from her perspective, the first thing you would be trying to deal with is it's a personal relationship. It's Yeah. You bring up a really interesting point, and this is something I think about a lot, is that, you know, we're all, at least in my opinion, I think most people are born good. Mm -hmm. How did that abuser get to the point where they became the abuser? And, you know, I guess knowing some people in my life sort of tangentially who I thought were good and decent people and then found out they did these really terrible things, I kind of think like, well, what the heck? Like the people on the other side of an abusive relationship, the abuser, that is a human being. That's a person that needs help, too. And it's horrible what they're doing. There's no excuse for what they're doing, but there's a reason for it. And, you know, at some point in their lives, they endured a lot and suffered a lot. And we're on the flip side of that abuse. And unfortunately, they didn't have the willpower or the strength to flip the switch and say, oh, well, I'm not going to carry on that cycle. And they brought it forward into their lives. But that, you know, that doesn't mean that someone who is in an abusive relationship should stay. But I think that most abusive relationships don't start out as abusive relationships. They start out as something loving and fine. And then it like... Or subtly controlling and not yeah. <laughs> explicitly abusive. Exactly. That's at least what seems that the guy that would be in that kind of relationship. It's not just, you know, a particular relationship, the particular dynamics that set it off. It's like that's that they're predators, that this is kind of what they're looking for. This is what will inevitably fall in. But I guess there are different grades of these things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, so it's always been a very interesting topic for me. Actually, my bachelor's degree is in psychology. Yeah. And part of the reason I got out of that is because <laughs> when I was an undergrad and I would go to like sit in with as sort of an intern in support groups, like I'd hear these stories about these things that happened to these people. And I'd be like, who did that to you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like want to go out and find that, you know, this person that did this terrible thing. And I was like, oh man, I don't think I'm going to really make a great psychologist. I, I think I need to find a different career path. <laughs> <laughs> there's a reason for the abuse. And I guess that's the ambiguous word that it's reason usually implies something that you're aware of. It's a rationalization. It's a re whereas, I mean, if they give a reason, it's, you know, I beat you because you did something, you know, that right. it's an, an obviously made up. It's definitely a rationalization. Whereas yeah. the reason on the other side could be just the cause, but it's hard to deal with yourself as having caused behavior that you don't really understand. But that's of course, what's interesting about songwriting. And, you know, I even, I, you know, like to gravitate to some of the, like Peter Gabriel has written some of the stuff, like from the point of view of an assassin or just from somebody that's really messed up and try to yeah. put yourself in that headspace. Yeah. There's a great song. Um, you know, the bare naked ladies, I think they're kind of best known for some of their goofy songs, but they've written some really brilliant stuff too. I can't think of the name of the song, but there's a song that they wrote from the perspective of the abuser. And like the, the pre-chorus of the song is I put my hands around your neck and then there's another voice that comes in and says, you wrap your arms around me. And it's that kind of like, I put my hands around your neck. You wrap your arms around me. Mm. And it's this creepy image. But the singer 
the singing from the perspective of the abuser. And like, you know, I regret every time I raised my voice and it wouldn't be that right of me to say I had no choice. I mean, it's just all this kind of, you know, cycle of the abuse and then the trying to make up for it. And I just thought that I was felt that was a really powerful and interesting song. That's kind of the beauty of songwriting is like you can explore so many different aspects of different topics and try to understand it, you know, try to put labels on things and names on things so that you can make sense of the world around you. What's the bit, I know how to save a life, but I can't stop the bleeding. What is this from the a medical professional's perspective? Where'd that line come from? Yeah, well, so the bridge of the song is, uh, I know how to be a fighter, but I don't know what I'm fighting for. And I know how to save a life, but I can't stop the bleeding anymore. So, you know, that that person that's receiving the abuse that whole mindset, I think, that exists sometimes, at least, you know, from that article that I read from that woman's perspective, where it's like, I know there's a good person in there, I can save him, I can bring out that better man in this abuser. But, you know, at some point, you just have to, like, realize, no, they have to make a choice to change, you can't change them. And you can't keep getting hit in the face, or, you know, cut or whatever it is that this person is doing to you like that, that is not acceptable. And you can't be the savior, you need to get out and you know it's but it's not always that easy well i was happy when i actually saw the lyrics because what i heard when i was just trying to figure them out listening was i know how to save a life but i can't stop this beating anymore i'm like that's oh. that's not very subtle that's no. <laughs> i need to articulate better i guess <laughs> <laughs> the arrangement here you said with this band Unlike some of your recent projects where you got in studio guys to fill in the space, this, these are people that you've been playing with a couple of years. And yeah. I mean, did you even formally go back to the way with Clear Blue Betty with uh, where the music is credited or publishing rights go to the whole band or is it still? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting <laughs> thing, kind of like sort of an evolution of a businesswoman songwriter. Clear Blue Betty was such a team and democracy, but I really largely did the songwriting and I would bring the songs into the band there may be like two or three songs that, you know, someone else actually composed the music and I wrote the lyrics and the melody or whatever. But the Beth Kelly band, like those songs were pretty much formed. You know, they contributed their musical parts, but, you know, the song structure, the lyrics, the melody, the chord progression, that was all something that I created. So, you know, the copyright belongs to me as the songwriter. Sure. And, you know, I don't, I don't regret the way that things rolled with Clear Blue Betty and that they all have a share of those songs because that was just a different band and kind of a different entity. I wasn't a solo artist. There was no, you know, Beth Kelly solo thing that existed back in those days when I played, I played with the band, but that's not definitely not the case today. I do a, you know, a lot more solo shows than I do with the band. So, you know, those songs are kind of my thing. And that doesn't mean that I don't appreciate and absolutely respect my bandmates contributions because they're brilliant. Uh, you know, Michael Tully is my guitarist and he's just one of the best guitar players I've ever worked with. And, Michael Mood's a brilliant musician, um, plays a little bit of everything, and he's a great songwriter, great singer. You know, he, uh, both he and Tully sing backup. And of course, you know, Tony's the drummer that plays in my head because he and I have just kind of grown up together musically. Well, kudos to uh, Michael, the producer. Yeah. This sounds fully as good as the previous albums, and the arrangement seems very careful. It's the standard, it's the setup I'm most comfortable with. You go in, you've written the song on acoustic, and then you have... You know, everybody has a very clear space that they have to fill. The fact that he's playing electric and you're playing acoustic means you're not going to step on each other's right. toes. But even given that, just the level of taste. So this is a four and a half minute song almost, and it could very easily be monotonous, drag on. But the fact that you have the drums come in a little later, then you have them leave for a while, that the guitar is super tasteful, but then just comes in with the select riffs here and there, especially like that, you know, the, the little final chord, the tremolo yeah. pedal thing that he does and where you introduce the backing vocals and i noticed a couple places you know it, i guess you're you're layering a third or a fourth one on top just for a line or here just uh yep. you know it all seems very carefully engineered to keep it at this sort of slow burn rising a little bit yeah well i appreciate that feedback i'm glad you like it and and honestly i mean I think that's just the brilliance of the people that i work with you know those harmony parts were kind of hashed out at rehearsals with the band and it's kind of fun too. I mean, like the Ready album and the Dust album, those were just songs that I banged out on my acoustic guitar and brought into the studio with a bunch of hired guns. And they were like, okay, well, we could play this. But the Beth Kelly band record that came out was very different in that those songs have been played out live at shows a number of times before we ever went to the studio to record them. So we'd done a lot of that sort of pre-production work in rehearsals and on the stage before we ever got to the recording studio. And Michael's 
a songwriter, actually, and Michael Mood and Michael Tully, they're both songwriters. You know, they both have just played with so many different bands and they just, they get it. They're smart. They're great singers. They're great arrangers, producers. And, and you know, it's ironic also on that record, there's a song called Wayward Soul, where I had the drum beat in my head and Tony, my drummer slash husband, like came up with an idea for the bass riff. And my bassist was coming up with ideas for the guitar licks. And so it was like, you know, we we're all kind of feeding into each other and building one another up. And that's kind of my mantra throughout life is just to surround myself with people who are smarter and better at me at whatever it is that I'm trying to accomplish. And, and they build you up and, and make everything more beautiful. So where did the main drum riff come here? That, does that come pretty early in the process? Yes, it's so unique, isn't it? I, I wish I could remember. I, I'll have to ask Tony where, <laughs> where that came from. I think that I remember him and Michael going around and round about ideas, uh, Michael Mood going around and around about ideas for that drum part. But, um, you know, Tony listens to a ton of music and he's always coming down into the basement with his drum kit and his headphones and playing on like songs where he, he hears like some drum beat that he really thinks is cool and like trying to steal from the drummers that he admires and, and I don't know, just some of the unique stuff that they do. Cause I honestly like, it's super subtle, but like I've seen enough of this happen. I'm, there's a great writer out of Nashville who came and did a workshop here in Madison. His name's George Taron. He's written a, you know, hit songs for a bunch of different country artists. And he played a song that he had written, just him and his guitar kind of singing it. And uh, actually, I think Brad Paisley ended up cutting it. But then when I heard the full production, I was like, oh, my gosh, the drum part on that song totally changed the vibe of it. Mm -hmm. And so I think people like the casual listeners don't recognize how much the drum beat shapes the groove of a song and can take it in a different direction, give it a completely different emotional aspect just based on the parts that they choose to play. My rhythm style tends to be a little overwhelmingly rhythmic in that, yeah. you know, that I would be like writing it as cha 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 like, and then, okay, so what's the drummer going to actually just play that in unison with me or something? But you've got a, a little more of an open palette, a little more of a, a neutral rhythm guitar style that I can see people being able to throw in their own ideas a little more easily. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Although I'm totally guilty of the cha 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 that you're talking about. You know, when you play solo a lot, you got to fill up a lot of sound. Yeah, yes. So, I mean, sometimes, I mean, I know, like, I mentioned that song, Wayward Soul. They're like, Beth, don't even, don't just, don't play in the first verse. And I'm like, no, oh, I can't do that. Yes, it's very <laughs> awkward. It's super awkward, but it changes the song and it gives it some place to go. So, yeah, that's a, a hard lesson to learn that you can't always play your your instrument from the second the, the gun fires at the beginning of the song till the second the, the race ends. <laughs> well, and that's another thing with the fact that your co-players are so restrained and you know, have this such a slow build that I think it just takes players with a certain level of maturity not to yes. like put a few extra guitar licks over the <laughs> to fill up the space. Yes, I totally agree. And that part of the build here that's so subtle is that that drum part, you know, it's the basic tom thing, but that he sort of introduces more symbols as it goes on. And so you yep. have I almost thought Wait, did he overdub a part here? But no, he's probably just doing something with his foot that he wasn't doing. When... Uh -huh. You know, I, I don't know. It's possible they cheated, but uh, I can't say for sure. I wasn't there when the drum part was recorded. <laughs> I guess the one last lyrical thing to point out. So when I was looking at your online lyrics and comparing them with what you were saying, oh, oh, it seems like the chorus lines are in the wrong order. But no, it's because when you hit the third chorus, you flip the first and second line and the third and fourth line. I thought that was great to sort of introduce some new subtlety there to, yeah. <laughs> to, to join with the different mood because that's when everything drops out except for you. Yeah, I'm glad you caught that. You know, I did that kind of deliberately because in the first two choruses are I can't make you change and I can't make you see. Oh, shoot. What? Yep, yep, that's right. <laughs> I can't make you change and I can't make you see. I know I can't stay, but I can't barely leave. Yes, but flipping that, it almost makes it sound more like the person's getting ready to leave. Because yep. they're like, I know I can't stay is the last line before that big cutoff in the song. Yep. And so it like, to me, it's almost like that. But again, then the song ends with, I feel like that old oak tree stuck in the ground. So it's that push and pull, like, you know, after the bridge and after that big build, it's like the person's like, that's it. Damn it. I'm leaving. But then the song ends with, oh, I'm stuck in the ground again. So it's that whole, like, I'm leaving. I can't leave. I'm leaving. I can't leave. Just sort of emphasizing that cycle. And even, you know, that guitar part that Michael Tully put in there, and the way that the chords progress, like, I just feel like it's like these ocean waves, like hitting 
And when I play it physically, like on the stage, I can feel that kind of like that wave, that cyclical, like it's rolling onto the surf, it's pounding down, it's pulling out, it's rolling up, it's yep. pounding, it's pulling out. And, but it's all, you know, part of the prosody and the, the setting the mood of the music to fit the mood of the lyric. Well, let's transition to the second song, which sounds on paper like it's very similar because it's minor key. It's sort of country western feeling again. It has a, well, not the same kind of guitar sound, but a, you know, something within that same general genre. But for some reason, even putting these back to back, it's a totally different mood. So this is Dead Man in a Dream from the previous full record, Dust, 2012. Do you want to give your introduction, say something about Yeah. Well, I woke up out of a, a dream, <laughs> literally woke up out of a dream and wrote this song in about a half an hour. And there's a pretty wild story about this, but I think people should hear this song first and I'll, I'll tell them more later. Dead man paid me a visit last night Brought back to life by my sleeping mind He told me everything would be alright And he held me one last time I woke up shaking, wondering what it means a Visit from a dead man in a dream A warm breeze blows in Through the open door I still feel the cool hands My midnight true door Saddened Such a shame to die So young Been so long now That he's been gone I rise up Rattled, wondering what it means A visit from a dead man in a dream I don't believe in signs I don't believe in fate And if he came to save my soul So the first thing I thought about this was uh, Johnny Cash. Yes, totally going for Johnny Cash. <laughs> the dark, staying on the same chord for a long time. It's where it's E minor, of course. Yes, <laughs> actually, it's E flat minor. I'm oh, dropped. okay. So, oh well, I, yeah. I don't play the song live very much. It's super low in my range, and so it's hard for me to project it live. Oh yeah, but it fit the mood of the song perfectly for the the recording. Well, and how could you do it live if you don't have either a nice violin or it doesn't sound like a single violin. It sounds either like a small string section or a very nicely recorded keyboard. No, that is Chris Wagner, the okay. brilliant and amazing Chris oh, Wagner. Okay. Violin. And I think he's also playing, uh, he's also playing Dobro. I'd have to look at the album credits. It's been, it's been a while. So the Dobro is the spaghetti western, the ba -dum boom boom, that, yeah. that guitar. Okay. So that song is, it's got the craziest story. Um, so I had a dream. This was when I was living in Texas, actually, 2009. On February 17th, 2009, I woke up out of a dream that one of my high school friends in the dream was in this dream. And, and I, in the dream, I was backstage. I was getting ready for a show and I was kind of flipping out because I was just really nervous to go on stage. And, and this guy named Chris, who I went to high school with, came up to me 
kind of out of the blue and like put his hands on my shoulders. He's like, Beth, you're going to be okay. And I was like, what are you doing here, Chris? And like gave him a hug. And, and I remember in my dream, I backed up and like kind of pushed him away from me. And I was like, wait a second, you're dead. And he literally died in a car crash um, a few years after we graduated from high school. At that moment, I woke up and I was like, what the hell was that? It really it kind of freaked me out. And I rolled out of bed and went to my studio and grabbed my guitar and started writing the song. And it's very much the feel and the, the truth of, of what happened. Now, the crazy thing is, is when I put out this record, I um, put together a little thing that had all the stories of, behind the songs mm-hmm. and the lyrics of the songs and uh, gave them to the people who contributed to my Kickstarter campaign. A friend of mine who had contributed to the campaign read that and he said, you know, Beth, it's really interesting that you mentioned you wrote that song in February of 2009 because my son took his life in February of 2009. And I was like, whoa, that's crazy. I'm like, you know, I, I hate to pry, but what day did this all happen? And it happened the day that I wrote that song. Now, the other crazy thing is that two years later on that date, my son was born. <laughs> Wow. All right. I think there's a song uh, with the date as the title there. Yeah. It was just so weird. And and actually I shared this with a friend of mine who is, you know, she's very like in touch with the spirit world and her own words. And she read that and she's like, you know, I think that Chris, your high school friend came to you in that dream to let you know that everything was going to be all right because my husband and I struggled for a very long time to have kids. So the fact that we were able to even have a family is, is kind of a miracle. So it's just weird that, you know, all these things kind of work together, that a life ended on that day, a life began on that day. It was a creative spirit that came to me to tell me something was going to be okay. And and the story behind the song got crazier as time went on. And it's always interesting to me to think like, you know, what happens to someone when they die? And where does all their creative energy and their spirit go? Can they continue to touch people in the living world? I don't know the answers to that. But when things like this happen, it makes you wonder what's going on. Yeah, I'm not surprised at all that somebody dead would show up in a dream. I mean, that happens <laughs> with some regularity to me, but it's definitely a, uh, let's l- look at the bridge. <laughs> Was this a sentiment that wasn't yet contained in here? Yes. This almost seems to be like the spirit of the genre of music that you picked. Speaking up, if he came to save my soul, oh Lord, he came too late. A little bit of melodrama to yeah. make it spicy. <laughs> definitely. Oh yeah, I'm not, I'm not above melodrama. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you're going to have a little spaghetti Western guitar and those eerie yeah. violins, you had written uh, one of the places I was reading online on your, on your broad jam page about this album of of how these were songs from various points over a number of years that contributed to this album that came out in 2012 here. But the songs were a few years older than that, at least, yeah. and that you hired all these really, really good people to fill it out. I mean, I guess first I'll say this doesn't sound substantially worse than your 2015 album, one that you did on the cheap, but it sure does sound good. I was sure this was like a major label had uh, harassed you and <laughs> but no, this is still an entirely indie production that you just threw copious amounts of cash into. Yes, absolutely. But you know, the players on this record are just ridiculous. And I, I mentioned Chris Wagner. He is just such a musical genius. And but what, it has this brilliant balance between walking into the studio with his mad skills and, you know, playing something amazing, but also being open-minded and not having a big head where like, if I was like, Hey, Chris, you know what? I'm wondering if you can just move that phrase so that it's not stepping on the vocal. And he'd be be like, Oh yeah, totally. You know, just no ego. And also Jake Johnson, you know, I got to give that guy credit. He was the engineer producer. He did so much work with me on pre-production and just, you know, live in the studio. He's just He's recorded a ton of records. He's worked with a lot of people. He knows these musicians. They've worked with him in various capacities on tons of projects. He knows what they're capable of and knows how to talk to them. And, and he has a great ear and lots of wonderful visions for the directions that songs can go. So he did just a, a brilliant job on it as well. And he did all the your engineering back to the Clear Blue Betty albums, right? Yes, absolutely. All right, yeah, he did my... Well, we usually used him for in new people for mixing that were too cheap to to do it from scratch. I remember seeing your CD cover up on his wall. He might have put one of them up. I think for the first record, we actually went in and did two songs from scratch with him and then brought the rest in. But he does a, such a thorough job mixing them, like yes. fixing every little thing that it didn't yeah. sound substantially worse. And it was so yeah. much cheaper. Just to, So the other two records we just did from home and my last solo record, I didn't even have a mix it because I couldn't, I didn't, because <laughs> I was fronting the bill myself. So he just mastered it and it still improved it greatly. Yes, <laughs> so. yes. But yeah, I could tell with some of the little things that, 
you know, when I would listen to the Clear Blue Buddy album and he would have your vocal do this effect, like, okay, yeah, he was trying to put that during the mix on <laughs> us a lot when he would, <laughs> as a little echo part or just these little stylistic things. So you said you, with, with the arrangement here, then it was a kind of a, you were overseeing the whole thing in terms of, especially if you, you don't have a band that's practiced this stuff. Right. I think it's a completely different process, even though the arrangement is similarly balanced in this one than in the first song, but just, you know, where does the little violin part go? So was it kind of, you're going measure by measure through it more or less at the time? Well, what I did was I, I sent all of the players who were coming in for the session, they all received MP3s and, you know, lyric chord sheets for every song. And, you know, I put like a little blurb at the top saying, I hear this is a Johnny Cash song, or I hear this is pop country or what, you know, just something to kind Mm -hmm. of give them a little guidance. So they all came in kind of with a basic, you know, working knowledge of what the song would sound like. But it was the first time, you know, the day that we recorded in the studio that they were all sitting in the same space divided by isolation booth walls, but (laughs) sitting in the same area to record the song. So there was a lot of like, oh, okay, so that's what you're doing. And oh, yeah, yeah. Now, one thing to note, too, is that Tony, my husband, is the drummer on all those tracks. So he and I had worked out drum parts. So I think, again, as we were talking about before, the drum part has a lot to do with the the groove and the direction of the song. So I think for the players to be able to hear a basic drum track, that gave the bass player a lot of guidance. It gave the rest of them like, oh, okay, well, this song is kind of a rock song and this song is more of a ballad or whatever. But yeah, there was a lot of stuff that just kind of happened on the fly and all the backing tracks for that were recorded in a week. Right. So this steel player, I mean, is this pedal steel? Is this uh, lap steel or is this just cleverly played regular guitar? <laughs> I think it's the dobro that Chris is playing. So, I mean, he's doing the little, what I was calling the spaghetti western part, but then there's this crescendoing part, the main ethereal guitar thing that's wow, that's doing, yeah, sort of throughout the song is the main oh. thing that is interacting with the fiddle. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a while since I've listened to the record. That's all right. But yeah, it, a lot of that just happened on the fly in the studio. One interesting thing about that song, though, too, is that the bassist played on it. And when they recorded that song, I was actually out of town. So I was like, Jake, I trust you. Just go nuts. But the bassist was playing this kind of like boom, chicka boom, chicka boom, like really kind of bouncy bass line. And when I heard it, I was like, oh, man, I love everything you've done, but I can't live with that bass part. So I went back and I re-recorded it just on a keyboard with MIDI just to kind of smooth it out a little bit so that it wasn't so like pony riding on the yeah. range sounding. I wanted the song not to, because it almost introduced an aspect of irony into the song that I didn't want. Right. I wanted the song to be dark and heavy. So that bass part got switched around um, before the song was kicked out the into production. Well, it's that steel or maybe it's not even there. Maybe I thought it was the appearance of the ghost in the song. That was the... <laughs> The violin does that as well, but this is the thing that persists through most of it and has that reverb-drenched, crescendoing-from-nothing part. Yeah. Nicely done. Thank you. You said when uh, you kind of got pigeonholed with that as being a country player, whereas you're not... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is not your overall thing. I, I've had similar issues, I guess, whenever you're, maybe not whenever, but it's not uncommon if, if your thing is, okay, it's just me and my voice and my acoustic. Well, almost anything can go over that. So it's really becomes a matter of like, who's playing with you? If you've got right. somebody who plays little country licks, then okay, I guess we're a country band. Right. <laughs> uh, sort of that the difference is in inflection. I mean, what Taylor Swift is that a country or a pop artist? Like it doesn't matter at this point, uh, you know, unless you actually put on a cowboy hat and self-identify as country or something. Yeah. Well, the record did got some airplay on like Q106 and there's a couple of country stations around the state that picked up a few of the tunes. So, I mean, in that aspect, it, it kind of worked in my favor, but I, I just, I have such a hard time. I'm like, I'm so easily bored with anything mm-hmm. in life. And so like the thought of just like sticking with one genre, I'm like, no, I can't do it. <laughs> so, and also like, I feel like sometimes people have sort of a reaction to different genres of music, just like country in particular. A lot of people are like, oh, I hate country. It's like, well, I, no, you don't you just, you know, <laughs> maybe you don't like certain songs, but there's all sorts of country music out there. So usually when people ask me what genre of music I play, I kind of, I say Americana rock which covers a lot of bases. Just say singer-songwriter <laughs> stuff. <laughs> yeah. That works. But, you know, some of it's 
I feel like when I hang out with singer songwriters or like, mm. like I definitely, I don't know. Sometimes I, I've been asked on a few occasions to do like folk artist things. And I just feel like I'm like this bowl in a China closet where I'm like, here I am with my guitar banging on it. Like everybody else. No. Yeah. Now that you say that, I mean, it's been like 1993, 94 where I was doing the open mic circuit a lot, but that was yeah. uh, another, you know, I would go in and kind of do my little violent femmes banging on the guitar thing. And it's like, no, that's not. It's John Prine and people of that. It's, it's a specific thing. It shouldn't be, but, but the acoustic guitar does not necessitate a particular style like that. But I guess it. Uh, yeah, I, I guess it's kind of the story of my life, though. I mean, like I, sometimes I feel like I fit in nowhere and I fit in everywhere. You know, like I don't. Know. I mean, I've never been punk and I've never been like super folk, but. I believe the Clear Blue Betty bio says something like, you know, can range from distortion laced punk to, you know, is like one of the extremes that. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. I forgot that was even in there. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, there were some songs that were like heavier and, but I don't know, like I, my voice is, is not, I think live I can pull some things off better than I can in the studio. I'm a pretty animated performer. So I think some of the heavier stuff I covered ACDC when I was with Clear Blue Betty, like could end the show with a, you shook me all night long. <laughs> but, but then when I'm playing some solo stuff and I break out my finger picky things, then it ends up sounding, some of the songs can kind of range into the folk thing. So yeah, I don't know. Getting back to the whole point of like being a country artist, that's not how I would label myself. Definitely have written some country songs. I spent a lot of time going to Nashville and being influenced by a lot of the writers there. And that's yep. uh, predominantly, at least what I heard there was a lot of country. Um, and there's some really brilliant stuff happening in that market, but I don't know. You know, they also just like my background. I think I, I never grew up listening to country. I listened to a lot of rock and. Well, the country songs sound like it's Rolling Stones country. That's what <laughs> you had one with an angel and yeah. the way you're pronouncing it. Like now that's Jagger saying angel. <laughs> that's which is how I got into country as well is listening to that in the old birds albums and the country rock stuff that was only accepted as real country <laughs> when a big enough country rock Americana genre had grown up, you know, by the nineties. Right, right. Yeah, so I don't know. I dabble in everything. Yeah, I think the label Power Pop works well sometimes because you don't have to have like a rock and roll voice for that. It's just, it's regular pop music, you know, strumma, strumma, but turn distortion on the guitar. Like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. This is a good transition to our third because Clear Blue Betty, so we're going to actually go back to 2007 here, I believe. Through the Walls from the, it's just from the Through the Walls EP, right? It's after your two albums were done. Why just an EP then? I think we just kind of wanted to get out some of the new songs that we'd been playing at that point. Did you know you were you were done for at this point is my, really my question. No, I didn't. The transition of, for us moving to Texas happened pretty quick. It was after the recording of that record. But yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think Clear Bloody was, was kind of running its course at that point. Mm-hmm. But we had a handful of songs. Um, John Messino had joined the band at that point he was, as our guitar player. And I think, yeah, it was just a band discussion that we thought we'd get these handful of songs out. We wanted to go in and do sort of a quick and dirty time in the studio versus, you know, stretching a recording out over the course of six months or whatever. Um, like, By which point half the band is broken up or you're already in another state or, you know, that's always depressing to have to finish projects like that. So I know, I know. But yeah, it just came out as an EP. So... This song doesn't really show it. This song sounds more reminiscent of your later style. Like this is in particular, like this is what the future Beth Kelly solo sound is going to be. Whereas the stuff before sounded like it was more jangle pop, power pop, whatever, this mm-hmm. guitar rock stuff. But you still have, I hear a definite, uh, I don't know, maybe it's just the way your voice was cutting, but uh, almost a pretenders vibe here. Yeah, I totally dig the pretenders. Yeah, I can't say that was any sort of conscious influence, but... um you know, it's funny because there are a handful of Clear Blue Betty songs that have made their way onto, you know, when I play with the Beth Kelly band mm-hmm. that still are being played. And that's one of them. So that's interesting that you kind of caught that, that it's sort of a feels more like my solo stuff vibe than maybe some of the other stuff that was crafted with Clear Blue Betty. Is that the kind of thing you would ever bother to re-record, or do you only, I saw you redid Sarah, right? Yeah, that was on the, the little solo EP that I took. Uh, yeah, which that and that song just evolved so much. Through the Walls has evolved a little bit. I have thought about re-recording that, which is, so again, another interesting question that could catch on your part. But uh, I mean, it's tricky when you've got a lot of new songs, too, that you want to get out. But it might be fun to, to redo that one at some point. Well, let's play it. Any introduction to the song itself? 
topically? Uh, this was another song that started with the title. It's a song about stalking your neighbor. <laughs> nice. <laughs> With friends to help unpack your stuff That apartment next door's being empty for an eternity And every cardboard box and beat-up chair Has piqued my curiosity thing that sort of came to mind immediately about the verses here was this is one of the most likable songs in the clear blue betty catalog that the verse sounded like brown eyed girl to me it has that really just nice open vibe that people but then you've got the chorus that is like just a classic 80s radio thing that i yeah (laughs) with you are you you're doubling yourself what is making the through the walls sound like that oh i'm sure i'm sure i doubled up that chorus but then you know my bandmates are singing back Mm -hmm. up there's a harmony yep which is uh rob my old guitar player singing along with me just on the 
through the walls, double it. Well, and then by the end, it's like you're doubled and then you have backing vocals also double tracked answering yeah. you. So that's just all him. Or do you bother when you write this kind of stuff? Do you then, okay, we're going to have when we play live now, because I want to recreate this, four of you are going to have mics and we're going to work on this, even though you normally don't sing, but I'd like you to. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Actually, I think Tony might have even sang the backing vocals along with Rob on that. And that's kind of like a blend of their voices. And I, I might have even doubled up with that with Rob on that, too. It, you know, it's, it's been several years <laughs> since we recorded that. So the actual specific recording process, I don't remember. But that very well could have been an idea that Rob came up with to sing that over that outro part. They're just re-singing part of the chorus, kind of like the lower harmony parts. Sure. I mean, that's kind of the beauty of working with a band. Obviously, that's not something I can do when I play solo. But, you know, how can you keep the song interesting? You could just do sort of a bland outro, but if you overlap that sort of ad libby part that I'm singing with the backing vocals from the from the chorus, and then you've introduced sort of a brand new element into the song that your listener hasn't heard before, and it keeps the, the listener wanting to hear it all the way through to the end instead of changing the radio station. Yeah. I was trying to think, does this sound significantly more like a band recording than your later stuff? And I guess, you know, the lead guitar does have a higher profile here than in the other songs. <laughs> Although I guess, interestingly, at the, the end, I mean, he's got a, a guitar solo in the middle, but then when you do this outro, you know, after the vocals even stop and the echoing, I would almost expect the guitar to come back in with another, like, wankity-wankity solo. But it, no, no, it's more or less just an instrumental part oh, before yeah. you just wrap up. With a, You know, you can hear the lead guitar is doing something, but it's not... It's not another solo. Right. I recall seeing a picture of you, a promo. There are like six people in the band at this point. <laughs> yes, exactly. So Clearly that he started out as a four-piece band, became a five-piece, and then turned into a six-piece band by the time we were done. So it just turned into this beast, you know, beautiful beast, if you will. But uh, it was, it got a little out of hand. So you had three guitars live or you just didn't play guitar? No, we had three guitars live didn't take the opportunity to to take the mic and run up and down the aisles and well yes i should you know what i did a fair amount of that <laughs> but not on every song you know i mean i played acoustic rob was playing sort of when john Nasino joined the band rob koth was playing who had you know previously been kind of mostly our lead guitar player was playing more like rhythm electric and then Nasino, you know who can play yeah till cows come home was playing a lot of the lead stuff so he's doing the solo on this, or this is all Rob? Yeah. Okay, okay. No, nope, that's that's Messino. So yeah, I mean, that was a song that we played out live quite a bit before we went into the studio as well. So, you know, it's kind of more like the approach of the recording The Wrong Side of Gone with the Beth Killey Band, where it was already pretty well produced when we hit the studio. It was just a matter of capturing the parts that we played live. So, you know, what you hear on that record is pretty much what you would hear when we played it out. Was it a pretty stable lineup, just adding the people? or? Yeah, so it started out with Tony, my husband, on drums, and then Rob Koth is the guitarist, and Doug Size is the bass player. And then my husband was doing his uh, residency at that point, and he's a physician, so um, so his schedule was like wildly unpredictable. So we added Jim Smith, who was another drummer. So he and Tony, uh, if Tony suddenly was like, well, mm, oh, shit, okay. I'm going to be on call that night that we have that gig booked, Jim would fill in as the drummer. You know, So we kind of started bringing Jim on sort of as our fill-in guy, but then it was like, well, actually, it's really cool that we have Jim because he'll play tambourine and congas on this song when Tony's playing Kit, and then they would just kind of switch off, and ah. and you know, he and Tony got along really well, and, and Jim's a great guy and a fabulous drummer, and, and so it was kind of fun to see them play off each other, so Jim became a permanent member of the band. And then John Nacino actually approached us after we'd asked him to be a guest artist on the um, Write Your Name in the Sky record on a song about seeing if we wanted to add a little bit more guitar to the band, and we tried it out, and yeah, soon we were a six-piece band. Well, I guess when things are going well, then people people want to jump on. That is, yeah. that is good. Yeah, it was a fun run. We learned so much together, and there was a lot of a lot of good times, a lot of love in that band. So this is still not your. You have a day job, right? No, actually, well, I, my day job is girls' rock camp. Okay, you know, I do non uh, work for the the Madison Area Music Association of the Mamas. Uh, I don't get paid for that. That's more volunteer, but. Um, I also have a studio where I record projects for people. I book my own shows. I do all my own posters and promo. And so I'm very busy doing just music stuff, which is wonderful. I'm, I'm very lucky to do the things that I absolutely love. So a true indie artist, although I, when I was looking on the Broad Jam, that the category is indie slash lo-fi. That, uh, oh, I really? Got God, I can update that. I don't know what lo-fi <laughs> means. Well, that means like guided by voices. Like there are bands that part of the sound is that 
we don't give a crap about production techniques. We're too authentic for that. And, uh, uh, but for me, it was a matter of that I recorded my first bunch of albums in the early nineties on four track. And, yeah. <laughs> and so yes, they're low fi because I'm a bad engineer and I have bad equipment. So. Nice. You had said in some interview, like everything you do feeds into everything else. Yeah. But it seems like, you know, even with Clear Blue Betty, you guys were on the ball in terms of the music business stuff that had to be done. Was that also collaborative or was that kind of you? That was kind of the beauty of Clear Blue Betty and something that uh, sometimes I miss is that Rob, our guitar player, like he designed our website and updated all, you know, anytime we had a show, he put that all in there. And Doug was kind of like, had all the sound gear and knew how to set all that stuff up, the, our bass player. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I did largely did the songwriting and Tony's brother actually helped us with booking for a long time. Uh So it was kind of like a big extended family affair. So and now, you know, all those things are my job, which, you know, being a semi-controlled freak, it's a good thing. (laughs) But uh, sometimes I miss like just being able to be like, hey, you take care of that thing for me because there's no one to do that. But now that I'm not working a day job anymore, that's how I make my living. I, you know, I play shows and I don't have to pay when I'm playing solo, I don't have to pay other people to play with me. I, you know, get to take all the money home at the end of the night. So that's sort of the beauty of being solo. But yeah, Cleveland Betty was definitely a collaborative effort. And then just doing all these local networking things, you mentioned the Songwriters Association. Is that sort of where the, in addition to the band albums and the solo albums we've been talking about, that you've had three side project albums in the past, like, two years, which yeah. I just discovered one of them, this Gin, Chocolate, and Bottle Rockets with you and two other singer-songwriters just this morning, and ah. it sounds phenomenal, that EP you guys put out. Thank you. That was recorded in my studio here. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, well, it, and it, it's not hard to sound phenomenal when you're teaming up with people like Jen Farley and, and Sean Del Marks. Um, you know, Sean is an amazing keyboard player and crazy, amazing singer, great songwriter. Jen Farley is like Janis Joplin, and but I mean, she can do everything. She's just got this amazing voice and this amazing stage presence, too. So the three of us have kind of been on fire lately, just... Uh, writing songs and playing shows and, and just having a blast. I mean, they're two of my best friends in the world and it's been kind of a, a fun love fest playing music with them and, and playing for people and, and kind of bringing them into the fold of all the positive energy that we have when we're on stage together. So yeah, that's my big side project. And, and what's kind of cool about it is, uh, you know, being in a, a band with two other women, like we, uh, I think, appeal to a lot of women's organizations we played or, different banquets and different events that are women power kind of events. So that's been kind of a neat little niche. That wasn't really my intention when I teamed up with those two, but it makes perfect sense. And and a lot of the songs that we sing or that we're composing, at least at this point, are fueled by that kind of like sisterhood and embracing your your womanness. (laughs) Well, and embracing singing harmonies with other lead quality vocalists is, yes. a, is, a, is a rare and awesome thing. Oh my gosh. Yes. It's well, and what's cool about that again, like they're both way better singers than me, but it makes me a better singer and it, you know, it pushes me, it forces me to like kind of up the ante a little bit and, and work hard. And I don't know, it's tempting to hide behind the other musicians in your band if they're filling in the gaps, but mm. I, I don't want, I don't want to be resting on my laurels. Well, yeah. Making yourself the, you're the guitarist in the band. You have to, that's right. It's going to fill that space. It's got to be you. Yes. I know you've had harmony vocals on your other albums, but it sounds like it was often the, the singers themselves that were coming up with it was, is harmonizing sort of part of your DNA. Is that, or is that a kind of a new thing for you? Yeah. You know, I feel like I've always loved singing harmony and like enjoy songs that have that but I was always the lead singer in, in all those other projects. So it was kind of like, okay, it's all I can do right now just to play the right chords, sing in tune, <laughs> remember the words and not fall off the stage. So why don't you guys just figure out what you're going to do and, you know, great, just don't suck. You know, <laughs> it was kind of my attitude toward harmonizing in the past, but really like the whole purpose of gin, chocolate and bottle rockets, like we're coming together because we want to blend our voices and mm-hmm. we want to explore those, those harmonies. And it is new for me. Um, and it was kind of the same thing with this uh, Kerosene Kites project that I have with Eric Challenge from the Mascot Theory. Yeah, tell us about that. So th- that's about the same time, right? Yeah, so that was kind of total happenstance. There's a coffee shop here I was talking about before, Tuvalu, and here in Verona that um, I go to. And one of the baristas, she was booking music there at the time. They have you know shows on the weekends. And, and she's like, oh, my boyfriend's band is playing this weekend. If you're not playing, you should stop by. And I was like, oh, great, your boyfriend's band. Sure, I'll come and, and listen. So I... You know, on a whim, showed up, and I realized that so her boyfriend is is uh, his name's Nick. He's the bass player in the Mascot Theory, 
their lead man was Eric Challenge, who was a guy I'd met several years ago as part of the Nashville Songwriters Association. And, and I remembered Eric and I was like, oh yeah, I remember that guy. He was a great writer and seemed like a nice dude and great singer. So I'm like, well, you know, how bad can this band be? So, so I show up and I was like, my jaw hit the ground. I'm like, these songs are amazing. These guys are awesome. Like I'm total fangirl. Yeah. So then I was chatting with Eric after the show and I was like, hey, what are you up to? What's going on with this band? And he's like, oh yeah, we just kind of got together and and uh, he's like, we should get together and write. And I was like, yeah, I would love that. So he and I started co-writing. And one of the first songs we wrote was a Christmas song. Because <laughs> I, you know, when we were in chatting, I was like, you know, I have all these like half-finished Christmas songs. I've been thinking about putting on a Christmas record. And he's like, I've been thinking about that too. Wow. So a couple of years later, we put out a Christmas album together. But, you know, again, our focus is is like kind of building off each other, songwriters mm-hmm. and harmonizing. And just kind of like the gin chocolate and bottle rockets thing. Yeah, it's, so it's been really fun exploring that. Like, it's it's sort of a new, you know, a little bit uncharted territory for me as a writer and a, a performer to be so focused on the harmony parts. But I love it. Tell us quick about the, the third project of the time. This is 2013, so you have a whole other album that's not listed in your in your list of albums uh, on your website here. This authenticity record. Yeah. Uh, so okay, so I I did a Kickstarter campaign in 2012 for the Dust album. And one of the perks that people who contribute to the record was that if they donated at a high enough level, they would get a songwriting lesson from me. And so this woman by the name of Liz Petty donated and I went over to her house one day. I'd never met her before. And she showed me some lyrics that she had written. And I was like, man, this is great stuff, Liz. I'm like, how long have you been writing? And she's like, oh, well, just for like two weeks. I'm like, what? She's like, well, yeah, you said you were coming over and I thought I should have some material. So I wrote this stuff quick. And I was like, that is insane. So she just, it was like something opened this floodgate in, in Liz Petty. Um, and she just started pouring out these songs and she doesn't like to sing, but she loves to write lyrics. And she started posting some of her songs on this um, February album writing month website. Mm-hmm. It's a, a challenge put out to songwriters in the month of February to write 14 songs in 28 days. And you can upload all of your stuff to this website and other people can collaborate on it. So she uploaded all these lyrics and all these people plopped melodies and backing parts on top of these lyrics. And it was kind of right when I was getting more into doing some of the studio engineering stuff. I just finished a course on it. And and I was like, hey, Liz, you know, you have all this really cool material that all these people wrote music for. You know, if you want to record a record with me, I would I would love to do that. And she's like, well, yeah, let me think about that. And she came back and she's like, yeah, I want to do this, but I want you to sing everything. And I was like, oh, well, okay, I can do that. (laughs) So that's kind of how it came to be. Those are all her lyrics. I think I composed music for maybe one or two of the songs, but all those other songs are like co-composed with people from all over the world, literally, who picked up her lyrics off of this February album writing month website and wrote backing parts for them. So it was a really cool project. It was it was a great way for me to kind of cut my teeth engineering like a full project. And Liz is, in fact, a physician. She's a dean at the medical school by day <laughs> and, and voracious songwriter by night. Awesome. Yeah. So to uh, carry us to the end here, I had uh, we have a song that we just introduced. We're not going to go in depth on it. Folks have an idea of how you write now. Now they, they've mastered you listening yes. to you. And I kind of went back and forth of what, of what we should do on here. For some reason, I had just, when going through the albums on Spotify, I had just skipped the Ready album completely until a few days ago that I, oh. like, no, no, that's a significant, so it seemed like a, a giant jump from your EP to the Dust album. But no, 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 there's a whole other nice sounding, not country album. It's actually quite varied in style. There's some synth songs on there. Yeah. There's that one's um, all over the place there's like record scratching there's like electronica there's folk there's a country ballad it's rock it's all over the place but that's my favorite record that i've ever put out it's very good energy on it and this song little bit drunk that i just determined yes i know it's kind of okay it's like a 60s chord progression and there's a little it's it, you know it's it's not the most innovative thing you've done or something but i I think this might be the one that could be in movie soundtracks. and I, it, Not that others yeah. couldn't, but I think this is some posterity potential here. Well, thanks. <laughs> Honestly, this song was written in about 20 minutes. I was, on, <laughs> I was on a date with my husband and we had a couple of glasses of wine. And, and, you know, I'm the wordsmith. I'm the one that's always talking. He's not a super shy guy, but he's not a man of a lot of words. But he, you know, after a couple of glasses of wine, was just like going on and on and on. And I was kind of laughing at him like who are you with this chatty Kathy tonight? I'm like, I like you a little bit drunk, 
that line just like stuck in my head. And I was like, ooh, that's kind of a cool song title. And I remember like texting it to myself. And we went to a movie. And then like as the movie was finishing up, like the melody popped into my head. And I was like singing it into my phone on the, as we were driving home. We were both sober by that time, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was just kind of that concept of how alcohol uh, can just kind of change people a little bit and soften people. And and so this is, you know, it's not complete truth. It's sort of exaggerated. All right. Well, let's play it for folks. Thanks so much for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. This has been really fun. I like you Just a little bit drunk your guard down a little bit ruffled I like you just a little bit slower a little bit softer a little more vulnerable why can't it be that way Just a little bit sleepy With your eyes closed Halfway to a dream I like you Just a little bit leery When you're speaking Without thinking Between intoxicated and sober In the moments between wide awake and sleep I see you in all your beautiful colors And your softer side seems to be more in love Just a little bit drunk With your guard down A little bit Ruffled Alright, super talented, first-class singer-songwriter Learn more at BethKilly.com Learn more about this podcast at NakedlyExaminedMusic.com including I'll remind you there's a link from this episode to become a small recurring donor, which will give you access to more conversation with Beth. And I put on that file also a song from her North Star Sessions, the Christmas album, and Gin Chocolate and Ball Rockets, the trio album. Please go subscribe to the podcast. Spread the word. Next episode, we'll have Jonathan Donahue from Mercury Rev. And after that, Craig Wedrin from the band Shudder to Think, who's now a big-time TV and film guy. And we'll have many more of these. But I gotta say, my enthusiasm for doing it is related to the number of people who actually listen to this. So if you want it to keep happening, please post the link to Nakedly Examined Music to your social media and go to the iTunes store to give us a nice five-star rating. Hey, if you've got some feedback or want to be on the show, feel free to email me at mark at nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And if you want to hear more of my tunes, please go to marklint.com. Keep on musicking, making music, being musical. This is Mark Lintzemeyer signing off.